You're listening to the Ed Up Worldwide podcast in partnership with the Star Scholars Network. I'm your host, Rajika Pandari, where each week I bring you my take on the intersections between education, culture, and migration. This podcast is inspired by my recent book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, which made me realize the fundamental role that education plays in connecting the world. These connections have become even more important over the past several years as countries and individuals have increasingly turned inwards and away from each other. Conversations about why education is important in opening our hearts and minds to the world have never been more important. Join me each week as we go behind the scenes for illuminating and deeply personal conversations with diverse global voices, international students, international education experts, migrants and immigrants, authors and artists, as we explore the varied ways in which the world connects through education. We often hear the phrase, Talent is universal, but opportunity is not. This gap is most obvious when we think about education and that millions of young people around the world never reach their potential, not because they lack the smarts or the drive, but because they lack access to the right kind of educational opportunities that will help open the door to their future. But what does it actually mean to identify and nurture this talent? My guest today is someone who has spent her life doing just this, building generations of talent, one student at a time. Rebecca Ziegler-Mano is the founder of the United Student Achievers Program and the organization Education Matters in Zimbabwe, whose mission is to match talent with opportunity. Where youth holds the key to the future, Education Matters is there to help motivated students realize their dreams. Before founding Education Matters, Rebecca worked with the Education USA Network at the U.S. Embassy in Harare. In addition to her work with Education Matters, she is also the co-founder of the Harley Access Network, an association of non-profit organizations in Africa that work with high-achieving, low-income students to access international higher education opportunities. In recognition of her contributions, Rebecca was awarded the 2021 GSC Excellence in Education Award from Stanford University, her alma mater. In today's conversation, Rebecca and I talk about her personal and professional journey from the US that led to her work and life in Zimbabwe, the struggles and triumphs of the brilliant students she serves, balancing global opportunities with issues of brain drain and the complexity and difficulties of returning home. Rebecca, I'm so thrilled to have you join us today. Welcome to the EdUp Worldwise podcast. Thank you so much, Rajika. It is such, such an honor to be on the podcast with you. 
I'm really delighted because, you know, I've been hearing about uh, education matters for many years now and reading about your excellent work. And you've, of course, the, the work of the organization has, of course, been covered widely. But I also want to mention for our listeners that there was also a big New York Times article back in 2019 by Frank Bruni that uh, featured your organization and uh, Wadzi, a 19-year-old student who I believe was studying at Columbia University. So I've been hearing about your work for a long time. So to get us started, um, Unite, so, so your main program, the United Student Achievers Program, or USAP, was founded just over 20 years ago, and your organization has now sent more than 500 USAP students to study abroad, and you have personally worked with over a thousand more students over this time. So. Tell us about Education Matters and your work. How I'm, I'm really curious, how did it all begin for you? Thank you so much. Well, let me start with the beginning and then tell you about the current work. Um, I think, and personally, it was in the way I grew up, which was with a father who was an international student advisor. Um, and our house was always filled with international students, especially when they had nowhere to go on holidays. Um, or, you know, we're having crises, they would be at home. So I, I grew up, although in a small town in California, surrounded by people from all over the world. Um, and I think that made an impression. Um, but I think the work really solidified when after graduation, I spent a year and a half in a village in Zimbabwe volunteering as a teacher. And I realized that talent really doesn't have borders or boundaries. And that often um, it's a question of access. It's not a question of talent. Who gets the opportunities to go forward and follow their purpose and their vision and live out their potential is just much a, a function of access and resources. Um, so I've always had this interest since that time of how do we find really talented youth um, who don't have opportunities and just be the bridge to give them those opportunities and then let them soar and support them throughout the process. Um, so I first started this work at the education um, at Education USA as part of the U.S. Embassy, um, but I quickly realized after some time the work was great there. But I realized that an embassy's purpose is to get people one way to the U.S., and my interest was to get them there in order to come back. So to uh, give people opportunities to educate themselves so that they could go home to make an impact, or and um, use their talents to enter a career where they could make a real impact um, on their home communities or home country and global issues. Um, so Education Matters started as an educational nonprofit access organization. I began it in 2016. So we're in our sixth year. And the dream when we got there was to realize how to transform the USAP program, which had been successful, as I said, as a one-way program to get people access to the US, but to widen it to the world and not just the US, and also to make it a school where we could really orient students to how to relate their education to the challenges in their communities and how to think about this before they left for college so that they could become problem solvers and not just exam takers in high school, but really students who are prepared to go out there, make the most of amazing universities around the world in order to get the ammunition they need to make major change in our world. 
And that's how we came to focus on a school rather than a holiday access program. And that's where we are now. It's in the third year of the USEP Community School and the sixth year of Education Matters as a nonprofit. That's great. And you know, you've touched upon so many things there. And I'm really hoping we'll we'll um, unpack some of those as our conversation continues. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of your early global experiences. And it's uh, so true. And you know, having conversations with people like you that that um, seed for global exposure or wanting to know more about the world is planted so early on and certainly was in um, in your cases uh, as well and then you took us all the way through to really these issues of um, of uh, exchange imbalances, I sometimes call them, where you know there's a, yeah. a lot of student flows are sort of in one direction to usually to the global north, and and so that's something I really want to get into um, later on as well. But let's um, stick for a moment with your students, and I I really want to learn more about them because I think that's what really speaks to the power of. Um, the programs that you're running. But um, the students that have gone through your programs really represent success by any measure and by all accounts. Um, many have gone on to Ivy Leagues and other elite institutions in the US. Others have become Rhodes Scholars, doctors, entrepreneurs. And to understand how far these students have come, students like Wadzi, who was featured in that uh, article, how significant this achievement is for them. Talk to us about the sorts of odds that the students have surmounted and what sorts of challenges they've overcome. Yeah, I think the amazing part of this whole process is exactly what you've what you've hit um, and what in your comments, and that these students have come from incredibly difficult in some times or just incredibly modest backgrounds. Our students are from rural villages where they haven't had any access to technology, to internet. Uh, our students are from the refugee camp where they've come from war-torn situations in the DRC, Rwanda, Burundi, to Zimbabwe, and they've grown up their entire lives in a camp. Um, our students are from high-density townships um, where their schooling situation are very large numbers of students in classes with very few resources. So that's the kind of students where they've already, you found a student who already has realized that education is my one ticket in life to not just getting out, but being something and being an impactful person. And that's all I've got because I don't have my family's wealth to fall back on. Um, and so the students we work with are just, the determination is incredible. Um, there's so many stories, but I can think of COVID stories, for example. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of cursed and known for being a storyteller rather than a statistician. Oh, I love um, that. But for and, example, and I love that actually, <laughs> sorry to interrupt. And, and I'm glad you said that because you know, that's, that's the mission of this show. And you know, I'm notorious for being a numbers person, but my goal for this show is let's really go behind the numbers and tell the stories. So, so yes, yeah, so no, no, do, do so, share the stories. No, I think when, you know, people, when, when COVID hit and everyone was making plans to get onto Zoom and get onto Teams and, and all of that, we were dealing with a school whereby literally our, none of our students had access to Wi-Fi, none. And we were going to be in lockdowns for a month at a time. So we had to devise an entire school curriculum to teach Cambridge A-level sciences via WhatsApp. 
um, and data and using solar panels and batteries and Kindles, et cetera, to, to piece together, how are we gonna continue with school? But what impressed me during this time was the incredible determination that once again, we saw in students. We had one student who literally walked 35 kilometers to get to a place where he could access electricity to download the videos that he needed to watch for his, his classes and to charge his phones and all that. We had students who, you know, were in very crowded situations would wait till everyone was asleep and do their work only at night, starting at nine when the whole household was asleep so that they could have a quiet situation to study. We just had students, we had students who were walking far distances, phone in hand to find a place to charge it or a place they could sit and get enough network to connect. Um, so when you see young people going to that length for their education, um, then it, it no longer is such a mystery to you how they can succeed to such a level. Um, and but what, what really hurts me is when universities don't see that same potential and they're afraid by the quote unquote risk they're taking and taking a student whose family income is $100 a year um, into their university rather than one whose family income is 50,000 from the same country because they, they see that if you're incredibly economically disadvantaged, you are quote unquote a risk. And we have been really have to work, do a lot of persuasion and access work over and over. And I think now we have so many success stories that there are some universities that say, no, these are some of our best students. Their economic background should not be um, a gatekeeper to them getting into a top university. Um, but there are a lot of, a lot more barriers to low-income international students than your average international student who's accepted somewhere through a part scholarship and partially their family as well. Yeah, and I think that you make such an important point by sharing those COVID stories because, you know, um, ever since the pandemic began, there's, of course, a lot being said about, well, maybe virtual learning is good and online learning is good because it actually increases access. But the counter argument yeah. always is, as you have just laid out so well by all of those examples, is that there is still a huge digital divide across the world, particularly yes. the global south. And and when students don't have access to the kind of technology on which online learning is premised and based, then in, a, in many ways, you've actually increased those gaps and, and, and the divide. So yes. um, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I think that's a, that's a really um, important point. So, um, you know, staying with the idea of uh, increasing access in the developing world or the global south. Now, I believe the USAP model has been adopted in other parts of the world, including Nigeria, Brazil, Ecuador, Latvia, Malawi, Mongolia. Um, yet, when we look at it globally, look at things globally, there remains a huge gap in increasing access to international yeah. opportunities for students around the world, particularly, again, those who are from the global south. Now, as someone who has clearly dedicated her entire professional life to increasing college access, inclusion, and equity, what are your thoughts on uh, can, can we do this at a global level? Can we increase access at a large and global scale? And how can the impact of organizations like yours um, not only be replicated, but also scaled up? And I would sort of add to that the question that 
can we scale up? Should we scale up models like the USAP and Education Matters? Yeah, absolutely. One of the um, visions we have for our school is that we people keep saying, are you going to create 20 USAP schools around the world? No, I'm not. We're going to have one amazing one in Zimbabwe, but we want it to be a lab school where other people interested in seeing what does a truly transformative education for an international economically disadvantaged student look like? And what does an education that in general that continually and intensely intentionally focuses on making positive change in one's country and community um, for top students. What does that look like? So that somebody from any country can come and spend a week with us and see the model because our education, our curriculum is very different. Um, we teach research methods. We have all of our final year students do a year long capstone project based on a challenge they see in their community and then prototyping solutions for it. Um, we obviously teach computer literacy. We teach, a, even though we have science students, we teach a very critical thinking focused reasoning and um, humanities core where they're looking critically at um, writings by people in their own country, which they usually don't get to see other uh, African writers and also what the world says about them, about Africa. Um, so I think what we're trying to do can be scaled up by seeing it as a model. Uh, we're also trying to do it on a very lean budget. There are some other schools in our region around the world who try to do similar types of curriculum, but they, we, I think we're doing it at about one-tenth of the cost so that it is sustainable. Um, but in terms of your question about can this be done on the global side, it's a supply-demand dilemma. Uh, we are seeing happily through the Holly Access Network, which is a network of organizations like Education Matters that I co-founded in 2016. Um, we have about 40 member organizations around the continent. So the number of students who are fantastic and very well screened and very well prepared for international scholarships from our continent has risen exponentially. But the number of scholarships around the world to receive mm -hmm. these students has not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the DEI conversation and the college access conversation in the United States has been very domestic focused, which is understandable. And we're obviously for any access to any college and um, POC student or underrepresented student, but it shouldn't be at the expense of low income international students. So when one, when one, you know, side of admission says we want to increase our um, diversity, equity, and inclusion goals and in admissions. They're usually talking about the domestic side of their right. um, their their budget, but it's, it's unfortunately sometimes that means taking from the international student financial aid budget. So I feel like we really need to think about this as if we're going to create equitable global educational centers and and international equity and in international education. It means a real commitment from the universities for more international student financial aid um, and not what we call gapping students. The difference between telling one of my students that they need to pay 5,000 out of the 90,000 a year or they need to pay 50,000 is no different. They can't afford the 5,000 and they can't afford the 50. Exactly. So if you're going to go that far, why are you not going all the way and offering more full opportunities for these students? I think they prove themselves over and over to be game changers. Um, one of the, the top um, team at Pfizer on the COVID vaccine was one of our students. Mm -hmm. And I think about the impact that one student has made because one university decided to invest in him. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, there are many, many stories like that. Um, so I think that's the problem with the scaling up globally is that on the counselor side, on the school side, we're all for it and we're all fighting for it, but we need equal partners on the university side to believe in these students and to see the magic of having such students on their campus for what they can teach the American students, what they can teach the faculty, the, the resources they are in classes, because they are very different than a student who has been part of like a global community already in mm -hmm. terms of being very mobile and they've traveled. The perspective that a student coming straight from a village who's never left the country, never been on an airplane, never been on the internet before maybe the end of high school, the perspective they bring to a classroom is completely different than the perspective someone from an international school brings, for example. Um, so to your, to your question, yes, it could be scaled up. Yes, it should be scaled up, but it needs the partnerships on both sides. Yeah, and you again, you you have so many great nuances and points and then what you said and you know the the point you mentioned about how even 5000 feels unaffordable that is so true and yeah. you know I often find myself in uh, in these sorts of conversations and actually I sort of described this in my book as well but even now you know whether it's at the institutional level or the national policy level when governments are considering raising whether it's something like a visa fee or uh, you know a fee to participate yeah. in optional practical training for someone in the west or sitting here in the us it feels like well it's just a hundred dollars more but that hundred dollars more really, really counts. Like um, yeah. where I come from originally in India, you know, each dollar is now 72 or 75 rupees. So it's that much more. Yeah. So um, indeed, I think that the, the financial, um, the negative financial impact can be felt uh, even more. And then um, you mentioned scholarships, which I think is so important and, um, you know, many people don't know that actually one of the specific targets within goal four on uh, education within the sustainable development goals is actually a target that asks countries to look at how well they're doing in terms of providing uh, scholarships for tertiary yeah. education or higher education for students from developing countries in the global south. And I was involved in some of this work uh, a few years ago, uh, partnering with uh, a team at UNESCO. And we tried to put some numbers behind this. And at that time found that globally, among students who are globally mobile from the global south, less than 1% are actually receiving scholarships from the countries yeah. that receive them. So um, I think it really makes a strong case for continuing to look for solutions um, that um, increase access to those sorts of uh, opportunities. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned uh, briefly at the top of our conversation and this idea that your work is not just about sort of the outbound piece, but it's very much about also the students bringing their talents back. And so since you're based in Africa and your work sits at the center of education and global opportunity, I have to ask what your thoughts are on uh, the brain drain issue as it relates to the continent, because it's something that, you know, continues to persist uh, based both on statistics yeah. and um, news reports. So what are you seeing as the pattern amongst your students? Do you feel that that goal yeah. of having them 
comeback is being realized. Uh, so I, I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, well, it will never be realized 100%. And that's um, human nature in the sense that if you send somebody, for example, to the US and they do four years, and then they do one year of OBT, and then they go to med school for four years, and then they start residency. And by the time they're at the end of that journey, they have been in the US for 15 years. They could be married by that time. They could just be have spent their entire adult life and they're now you know, 35 or 40. Um, so there are some, I think it's, it's, it's not by chance. You cannot throw someone to another country and just expect they're going to come home. Um, one of, I think it's very naive and very judgmental to say to people, well, why didn't you go home? Um, when there's been no support network to help someone build a network at home professionally, to get professional experience at home and to see what would be possible there. So right now, as I said, that one of the reasons, it's, it's the reasons of all the steps in this journey, the reason of leaving the embassy to start Education Matters and then the reason of starting the school was to be able to be more intentional about supporting students throughout that journey. Um, so some of the small things, we run an internship program so that after sophomore year, students, instead of doing an internship in the U.S. so that their only professional experience is the U.S., um, come home and work with a company or, or a big organization in Zimbabwe for the summer and, and do an internship there. And it's starting to expand your network. If you left home from a village, from a township in your uniform, in your high school uniform, and then did all your professional development, all your professional work has been in another country, you don't even know, you don't have a vision of what's it like to work in your home country. You don't have a professional network. You don't have any idea of the work culture. Um, and sometimes when students come home for that internship, they're actually surprised, like, wow, I didn't know all this computer programming was going on in my country. I didn't know there was a lab with this kind of equipment here. I didn't know because it was everything they experienced was in the global north, as you said, that has anything to do with being professional or or competence or a career trajectory. Um, so a lot of that is, is part of that is exposure. But the other thing is that um, I feel like there's a real paucity of funding for people who have fantastic ideas to go home and implement them. There needs to be an investment fund that I have finished. I want to come home. Uh, there used to be like the return of talent program way back where they would pay for your shipping so your things could get home. They would pay for your first few months. It was like a relocation program so that when people finish graduate school, it would help them to go home. But when you finish school, whether it's graduate school, your first degree, and you, you're broke, you have no money, you've been a student, and then you're told to go home. You don't necessarily have a home, a decent home to go to. Your family could be five hours from the capital in the village. Where are you supposed to go and how are you supposed to start off? So I think there's a lot of questions there to unpack, but I think it, the idea is that it's not, it's kind of disingenuous to just expect people when you send them to be able to come home without a lot of support and guidance on how to come home. So the way I've started to work with students and we have at our school before they even leave is this idea that I, I've coined the nose of the airplane. That is mm. like every decision you make puts the nose of the airplane leaving home or coming back. And that starts from your first, it starts from what you decide to study. It starts from when you're doing a research project. Have you thought about doing it using a case study from your home? It's which language you decide to take as a, um, as a, as a foreign language, what kinds of, skills you decide to get, you know, how are you 
thinking about the problems you want to solve at home every step of the way and with every decision. So you, it's easier in the United States for one of our students to get a job on Wall Street. It's like the easiest thing for them because they're bright, they're articulate, and they can get snatched up by a big firm, even if they had hoped to do public health work or nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have, to, if somebody really wants to follow the trajectory that they started, they have to be so intentional about it. Um, so it's constantly trying to have support groups for students and showing them all kinds of opportunities. Here's a grant that you could go, it doesn't have to be to Zimbabwe, but you could go to another con- country on the continent and see how they're solving the problem you're interested in or get experience with an international development organization. Um, so I've seen that when students have been intentional about that, they're much more likely to come back to the continent. Maybe Zimbabwe, maybe a neighboring country, but when they've had exposure to things, those who go away for four years um, and all their experiences somewhere else, it's a really hard push to come home. Um, so part of this is what you talked about, like when you're nickel and diming a scholarship, there's some students who have to work so much to pay parts of their college bills that they can't afford a ticket home for four years. And they mm-hmm. literally do not see their family for four years. So now coming home in their mind is a visit to see their, to see their family, to sit under the mango tree with their grandmother, to see how the cousins have grown. It's not a place where you'd think about living and working. It's a place they have it. They feel very different. They feel alien when they come home because they've been gone for so long. So we're trying to push that our students should be able to come home every year, just like any other college student. You see your family in America three times a year if you go to college in a different part of the country. But at least if you could come home once a year and maybe once in the four years, you come home for the whole summer to do an internship. I think the pattern, the research will show that people like that will start to make plans on how they can link education to home. Yeah. Wow. I just... I just love everything you've said and it resonates so much with me and um, I'm sort of thinking of where to start because there's so many things that I want to dig into with your with what you've just said but I'll just say that you know starting with what you just ended with I would actually wager that it would still be the the adjustment back home is still difficult when I was a student I was very fortunate And I was intentional about it of going back home every year. So I went back every year, yet it was still that feeling of being back home on a vacation. And yet many years later, despite sort of being in constant touch, going back every year, yet many years later, when I tried to return back home to establish myself professionally, and I failed, and I talk about this extensively in my book, um, I was not prepared, as you've just described, for how much I had changed and evolved at the individual level, um, at the professional level, in many ways, professionally, in terms of my networks and my identity, I came of age in the US. I had changed as a woman, I had changed in my expectations of what I expected society and community around me to in how to support me as a as a woman professional. And so those were all things, but it was almost like a reverse reverse 
culture clash in going back and trying yeah. to reestablish yeah. myself in India. So I think in everything you've said, it, the one I mean, it, it is so important. And, and I, I love the fact that you say that, you know, let's not be naive that this uh, either just yeah. happens automatically or uh, that those who don't succeed at it uh, should be faulted or judged in some way. So so thank you for saying that, because I think it is not an easy decision that people yeah. have to make and do you go back home or, or, or even what constitutes home anymore right what constitutes so yes. yeah. but i think that one of uh, from a policy perspective um and in terms of practice one of the really important points you make is that if uh, nations want to be intentional about attracting back their talent they have to make the efforts yeah. to do so and that they need to help people succeed in their efforts to return back home. And um, there are yeah. examples of some countries that have done this very successfully, countries like South Korea, yes. which uh, has had, yeah, Rwanda, which have had much higher return rates amongst their students. And yeah. the other point related to that that I think you make that is so important is that there needs to be a national level investment in research and innovation. And that's going to help people yeah. seed their ideas and develop the creative ideas that they're bringing back. So just- um, yeah. And I, yeah. I would give a shout out also, I think what has to also happen is there needs to be a community of people who've returned that support mm -hmm. each other, who have the double skin, who if somebody says, oh, I really miss Chipotle. They know what they're talking about or, <laughs> oh, I would love to. But yet they're, they're no less Zimbabwean than anyone else, but they've had this other skin and people responded. Or, or as a woman, they feel that they can interact a Roman female professional differently than somebody who hasn't had in a, another experience than the cultural experience at home. Um, and one organization that I really, really love and think should be emulated is called Ahaspora. It's in Ghana. Um, and it was started by a woman who studied in the U.S. who works for the World Bank now in Ghana, who's Ghanaian. And it's an organization, Ahaspora is like a play on diaspora. Diaspora, yeah. Diaspora. But it's Ahas, Ahas from the Ghanaian language tree, and it means like to return. So it's, it's like the group of people who studied and came back. Mm -hmm. And they do everything from like happy hours to investment seminars on property, buying property locally to job fairs. To, but it's grown to be hundreds and hundreds of young professionals who've returned home, who studied abroad um, in the UK or the US or Europe. Um, and, and it's really fantastic to see how it's been, you know, a mutually supportive place where people find other friends like themselves, activities that they'd be interested in that wouldn't be normally part of society if they had just come home. Um, and I think that kind of cultural capital needs to be grown as well as what you said the policies from from government and it, it needs to there needs to be a place in society for people who think differently because mm -hmm. it's a positive thing because they went out and they're bringing themselves back as they are not trying to bring back and fit into what they used to be yeah, yeah. so that's some of the work that societies need to do too so that people would feel positive about wanting to come back mm -hmm. absolutely yeah so Rebecca, as we get to towards the end of our conversation, um, I know you talked about the new newish USAP community school, and you shared some stories about it. Um, is 
can you share with us quickly what's happening now? I know you talked a little bit about uh, some of the COVID stories, but what was it like launching right in the midst of a pandemic? I think the school started two or three months before uh, yeah. the pandemic was uh, official uh, around March of 2020. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more uh, more about that. Yep. So it's a very um, wonderful community. It's called USEP Community School on the in the intentional way that we are building a community that it can be an example for young people of what community can be. Um, so we are based on values of integrity, equality, service, and curiosity, and we really live them intentionally at the school. As you said, we opened in January 2020, and then COVID hit two months later, and we all had to go home and figure out this hybrid. So this third year, we are, we're our first cohort. It's a two-year A-level school, uh, fully boarding, and we take um, our capacity is 45 students a year, um, so 90 students in the two-year groups. Uh, when we're at full capacity and we take them from all over the country so we get about 500 to 600 applications and then we're interviewing assessment tests everything to find this combination of somebody who really needs our school does not have access to quality education some of our students had been out of school for a year two years because they literally had no money to go to any school some were at just very poor resource schools etc um so we're looking for that combination as well as highly talented, these are incredible kids in terms of academic talent and just kids, uh, students who have a drive for bettering their communities. And they've already shown that in like the way they live and things they've done. So when, once we get this cohort together and they get on campus, they're very fascinated because they are from all the different ethnic groups of the country, as well as 10% of our students are refugees. Um, so they have different countries represented there. Um, and so we've been renting a premises and our big drive in 2022 is we're now building our permanent campus. And we're excited because the buildings are intentionally designed, the way we do residences for discussion, the spaces, the classrooms, everything we've been thinking about is to be sustainable, to be to build community and to um, to promote sort of dialogue and discussions in all parts of our school so that the school we will be building this year in a big campaign, um, we hope to move to the permanent school. If we finish raising our funds and all, and all the building goes as planned, we hope to move in 2023. Um, but our first cohort graduated in December. They are in the middle of getting college applications, literally college acceptances as we speak. The last one we just got was MIT two nights ago. Um, so we are, we're waiting on college acceptances from different countries in the world, not just the US, but the US comes out first. Um, and then this first cohort will start university in August. Um, and uh, we're right now in our third cohort of the school. Um, and I think one of the most exciting things to me has been seeing how quickly the give back has started with this group of students, more than any group I've worked with before. The students who graduated in December started working on community projects from now until they go to college, not because we told them to, but because they wanted to. They wanted to enact their capstone projects or they wanted to um, volunteer at local schools. Um, so they've been really involved in their communities and, and doing different things um, in, this, in these first few months as soon as they got out of school. And I think that bodes well for them being very rooted in their community before they leave for college. 
That's incredible. And a huge congratulations to uh, you and your Thank team you. for all of these accomplishments. That sounds uh, just uh, just fabulous. And uh, I'm sure a real dream come true for you uh, to, to see this, uh, this happen. So Rebecca, um, as we close out, I want to come back to you and, um, you know, our world and especially the universe of higher education um, that we that we both work in has been so disrupted over the past few years due to a combination of things like certainly growing nationalism that we've seen in many countries around the world, many countries that receive your students. Yeah. We've seen xenophobia, we've seen escalating financial pressures and the global pandemic, which is still continuing, um, just to name a few. Um, my question is, how are you remaining centered and focused on the really important work that you're doing? And what are some things that give you hope for the future? Yeah, I think the second part of the question is easier than the first. <laughs> the second part, I mean, the students continually give me hope. They just, um, yeah, I think nobody has told them yet that they can't do things. And that's always what keeps us all hopeful and young is um, when somebody has an idea and you want to say, well, and they're saying, this is what I'm going to try. I'm, we just had a student who entered um, an entrepreneurial contest with the idea of using a used bicycle to power a grinding mill in an area where there's no electricity to grind maize so that women wouldn't have to spend the whole day pounding the maize. Um, and she designed it with some other students and they entered this competition, international competition and she won. And now they're making these bicycle powered wow. grinding mills. And when you see something like that, you think, why can I not be hopeful when there's a, a, an 18 year old who's just doing this on her own time, not because it's an assignment, not because it's going on her college application, she's already been accepted just because she wants to try to solve a problem. So the students continually make me hopeful. Um, but I think personally, Personally, what's gotten me through, it's been a very difficult time for everyone. Um, and I think when some of our students live in very difficult home situations that became more difficult when everyone was on top of each other. And I think that's been studied very well. Um, so during those tough times, for me, long walks and podcasts and fresh air mm -hmm. and you know, writing and all of those, taking time for that to sort of slow down has been important. Um, and I think it's been trying to find, I think we have to keep sort of the big ideas and the everyday, um, the everyday work in balance. So sometimes if the big ideas got too, too much or the big pressures, then it was like, let me go work in the garden with a few students for some time, mm -hmm. <laughs> the school garden, or let me go teach that class, or let me work on that, you know, that small project as opposed to, um, chipping away at the big ideas one by one. I think that's how this work gets done. Um, you keep the big ideas in, in your mind, always the vision and the hope, but you break it down to what can I do today when I wake up? What is it that I can do today? And I think that's what, um, as I tell one of my friends who works in the access space too, I always look at one small thing. What's one small thing I can do? And mm -hmm. if you can just keep going on one small thing, one small thing, mm -hmm. um, eventually you'll see the difference. 
Those are wonderful words of uh, wisdom to end with, both about the importance mm -hmm. of those small steps leading to big impact, but also really that the the uh, you know today's generation is our hope for the future, and the work that you and yeah. uh, your organization is doing is really helping. Um, uh, water those seeds of uh, of talent and uh, the sorts of stories that you just uh, shared, which are just amazing. So thank you again so much, Rebecca, first and foremost, for all the amazing work um, you do, and also for sharing your wisdom with us today. So, so welcome. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It really, like I said at the start, it really is an honor. Thank you very much. Our guest today was Rebecca Ziegler-Mano of Education Matters. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Rajika Bhandari. As always, please like us, follow us, and most importantly, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. All information about the show and show notes are available on my website at www.rajikabhandari.com slash podcast and if you'd like to delve more into the sorts of themes we talk about on this show be sure to get a copy of my new book America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility available wherever books are sold and through my website and also subscribe to my newsletter See you next week when I will be back with another conversation about how education helps open our hearts and minds to the world.